Welcome, welcome. We're here for our uh, fourth episode of uh, Basecamp live stream, and we've got a special guest with us here that's made the rounds of Basecamp all throughout the state of Michigan. Our good friend uh, Clayton Curvino, the man from down under, so I'll prepare you. He's got a bit of an accent. Doesn't sound like a Western Michigan thing, so it'll keep things a little spicy for our show here today, but we're excited that you've jumped on. We're hoping that a bunch of you are watching tonight. Terrible weather outside, um, which is great for, for broadcasting and for live streaming for sure. So uh, thank you for joining us. We're going to continue on this schedule about every other week, um, and we'll talk about our next speaker at the end of tonight. Uh, but our next broadcast, our next live stream will actually be May 31st. So we're going to do that for as long as the breweries stay closed and restaurants for that matter. Um, we're very eager to get back inside those buildings. I have probably about 12 different guys throughout um, the state of Michigan and even a guy in Tennessee today had emailed and says, hey man, we're ready to, to start this base camp up in Tennessee as soon as uh, things open up. So we're very eager to get back into physical locations. I know many of us miss that. And, um, but until then, we're gonna do this. And then even as they do open up, we'll probably move uh, this particular live stream format to a once a month. But until then, we'll go every other month. So thank you for coming. Appreciate you coming from all over. We're now on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you'll notice tonight that there's two different cameras that are operating, so we're trying to kind of dice it up a little bit. I've got ADD, so it's hard for uh, me to just look at one static screen the whole time. So hopefully this will be a little bit more animated and a little bit more robust of an experience for you as the viewer. So um, a couple things that I just want to talk about up on the front end, if we can put some of those slides up here uh, that we can talk about before we actually get into the interview itself. And the first one is uh, called Camp One. And uh, many of you are aware of what this is. Some of you are not, but it happens uh, twice a week now on Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's at 7 p.m. and it's a Zoom group. So uh, I don't know who has uh, stock in Zoom right now, but you're doing very well. This company is just blown up. Uh, everybody seems to be Zooming nowadays. So it's just a great way for us to continue what happens on these live stream events or in breweries for that matter. It gives us an opportunity to get to know you better and us better. It's very casual, it's very conversational, so there's no real curriculum that we walk through. Uh, there are other men's groups that do that and they do it very well, and so we're always trying to chart territory that is not so uh, discovered. And one of the things that we have found is that there's not a lot of men's groups that get together just simply for uh, the art of conversation. And uh, it's a wonderful time for you to talk about whatever you wanna talk about. There's no real hyper structure to it. Other than that, what stays in the group, um, it, what is said in the group actually stays in the group. So that's on Zoom. Every uh, Tuesday and Thursday night, you can go to graceexplorations.com, which is on the screen that you're looking at, and click on that link, and that'll put you right into the Zoom group at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, also, if we can put up our, our giving slide, um, we've had some generous friends that have enabled us to actually put on these particular episodes. They uh, cost us to produce about $500 each, and uh, some people have stepped up to the plate to help us do that. This is something that we were hoping to actually uh, raise money for first and then do, and because of the global pandemic, we found ourselves in a situation where we're like, you know what, I think we need to do this a little bit sooner than what we thought. So we. Uh, just stepped out in faith and God has been good. Uh, but we'd like you to think of this as a base camp in a brewery where everybody contributes. So just like we do at the brewery, we have a pitcher at the end of the table. Guys come in and, and then either on their way in or their way out, we suggest a $5 donation at the door. If you guys could help us with that, that would be fantastic because right now just a couple of people are carrying the load for these and we're very grateful for them. Some of them are probably watching tonight, super friends of our ministry but if everybody can contribute a little bit, just go to graceexplorations.com 
and uh, click on the donate button. It's there prominently on the front page. And if you want to learn more about what we do beyond even live stream, we have all kinds of other ministries that we're a part of. Uh, you can just go to our partner with us page and you can learn more about that there as well. So there's a thought that I'd like to uh, introduce tonight, and it's this idea that uh, Clayton has probably heard in the mountains, and I have as well. I'm not even sure who said it. I googled it, and a couple of different names came up, so I'm not going to prescribe it to anybody, but it's a great thought because I think it sets the stage for um, our interview tonight. And by the way, while this interview is going on, think of some questions that maybe you want to ask Clayton afterwards. We're doing this much like we do at our physical base camps in that we allow for Q&A afterwards, so it's not just a monologue. Um, but you can just go ahead and type those in the sidebars, whether you're on Facebook or on YouTube. Both of them stream into our platform, and so we can actually uh, prepare those and answer those for you as best we can. But this idea uh, is this, and it's kind of deep, so you got to think about it uh, for a while because it's, it's one of those things where, wow, that's got a lot of nuance to it. Uh, and the statement is this, climbing has much meaning but little purpose. So Clayton and I have been on enough uh, expeditions and climbing. Um, he's actually been on uh, Everest to base camp, and I've climbed five of the seven continental summits around the world and skied to the North Pole and spent four summers, five summers actually, on Mount Ararat uh, as a lead mountaineer helping a group of scientists search for Noah's Ark in the film Finding Noah. Um, but you, you walk away from these extreme expeditions and you're wondering, what was really the purpose of that? You know, people are risking their lives and their limbs and they're just going out there and they're coming back with frost nip or frostbite or in worst case scenarios, uh, they don't come home. We had that happen um, during one of our seasons on Ararat and I've seen people injured high on mountains and I've seen people having to be dramatically rescued high in mountains. And uh, Clayton was part of a, an incredibly epic story of survival and rescue, uh, the likes of which Everest had never really seen before. But you kind of scratch your head and you walk back and you're like, what was that really? What was the purpose of that for? Mm -hmm. And uh, I would just suggest to you that let's maybe get off the purpose bandwagon just for a little bit, because sometimes I think we endlessly try to find the purpose for every single thing. Like, what's the purpose of the pandemic? And, and how does this weave into a greater story? And I just think there's a cosmic chess game that's going on. And I think God is, is already knows the outcome of how this particular event is going to play out. He's already 20 steps ahead, so he's an expert chess master. And in a cosmic, uh, real sense, he already knows how this thing's going to play out. So all we need to do is just stay on the chessboard and play our part, or whatever that is. And maybe that's the same way with mountains, and maybe that's the same way with life. Is um, Maybe the real key is not so much the purpose of something, but what's the meaning of it? What's the, the take-home um, idea that you walk away with. And so with that idea, I want to introduce Clayton Curvino. Clayton is our guest uh, with us here tonight, and uh, Clayton experienced something very dramatic on April 25th, but you're probably wondering, how in the world does a guy from um, Australia, from down under, end up here in Grand Rapids? So maybe we can start, Clayton, with how um, that happened. If you want to talk a little bit about your childhood as well, maybe just set the stage before we get into the real meat of the story here. What brought you to Grand Rapids? How did you find this place? Well, uh, that's, that's an interesting story. Um, basically, my wife. Uh, so uh, we met, um, well, how far should I go back? <laughs> uh, maybe the first time you met, or uh, I know some of the particulars of it, but. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, um, so uh, uh, my upbringing, um, I'm the eldest of five kids. Okay. Um, my parents divorced when I was 12. And uh, throughout that whole journey, though, my mom always took us to church. And the church we were at was a church of God. 
and it just so happened that it was affiliated with a university in Indiana called Anderson. Hmm. And I had grown up with students coming over every year um, on a, a missions trip, really, um, for a couple of weeks, and they would come out and stay with us. And uh, that just happened every year. So I'd grown up with that. Fast forward to uh, 1999, and um, my wife, Holly, happened to be of the group the last group that was coming out from anderson okay um out to the church uh so long story short <laughs> we uh basically uh met back out home in australia and then um dated you know kind of did the internet thing a little bit but right not really because it wasn't quite you know uh a lot of that going on back then um some expensive phone bills, a lot of talking, a lot of chatting. Um, and then uh, we kind of realized that there was something going on here. Uh, so uh, fast forward again, I, she invited me over. I came over in the Christmas of 99, mm. um, waited for the whole world to stop spinning when it was supposed to, but it never did. Right. And um, Y2K for those of you that are not even born then. That's right. I f <laughs> yeah, I forget. That's man, it's 20 years ago. So yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, we basically knew then that this was, you know, a for sure thing. Um, and we got married in August of 2000. And uh, because of circumstance uh, and my visa and all of that, it's, uh, you know, people that are going through that understand what that's like mm -hmm. trying to live in a different country and get married to someone. Um, but uh, I went back at home, lived out home for a couple of years. Holly joined me out there. Uh, and then September 11 happened. And um, we were actually starting a life out in Australia. And uh, because of that, and I was applying for my permanent residency over here in the US, it fast-tracked everything. So we had to make a decision of uh, where we were going to you know, live for the next you know, six months or so. Mm. Um, and we basically had already gone through the process and we said, well, let's just complete it. So we sold up everything that we had in Australia and moved here and been here ever since. Wow. And you're just kind of a cool guy. I mean, you look like we talked ahead yeah. of time. You look like Stonewall <laughs> Jackson. You know, you, you got that Civil War, really cool beard guy. Look, I couldn't grow that. It just wouldn't look right. It's kind of like Conan O'Brien growing a beard. It just doesn't, it doesn't work very well. But you've got the face for that. But you're just this cool cat. You're one of the, the most uh, laid back guys that I know. But what I didn't know, and this happened maybe a year ago, you and I were breaking bread together. We were having a meal. And I noticed uh, that you're eating very slowly. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so I asked if, because I had an employee at one of my companies that I used to own, he had literally a small esophagus and he could only eat uh, very slowly, couldn't take those, you know, anything like a horse pill that we take with vitamins or whatever. And so um, tell us why, why you're eating slow. I, I thought that was really a profound insight into the story and how you grew up and what that was like that many people, quite frankly, can't really relate to. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, you know, my, my parents divorced when I was 12, and uh, that was just, it was something that happened. Um, you know, I, I, looking back on all of that now, um, you understand it as an adult, and as a kid, it, it's difficult to understand. Um, so as a result of that, you know, my mom raised us five kids. Mm. And uh, I, I mean, we moved around to so many different houses, so many different places I can remember as a kid. And uh, being the eldest, and I was only 12, um, the youngest, Christy, she's uh, nine years younger than I am. Um, so uh, it, just the burden of, you know, 
not ever having enough, making sure that, you know, the other kids are fed. Um, just that constant. You're almost becoming a, a dad, really, in uh, many ways, the man of the house. A little bit. And yeah. that's, that's kind of what it felt like. Um, and, you know, that kind of plays into this story of this whole journey that um, my brother and I wanted to take um, uh, through, uh, through Nepal. Um, but, you know, there's so many pieces of this that I'm dealing with now as a well, 43, 40, hang on, no, 46. Oh, man, as a 46-year-old man, um, figuring that all out. And uh, you, you look back on those things as, you know, just events that happened. Yeah, um, at the time that you, do, you can't put into the larger piece. Right, yeah. right. Uh, but a lot of that, uh, has shaped who I am now at 46 mm. um, out of uh, just thinking back on those things and looking back on those things and then realizing that, um, you know, those are the things that have really made me who I am today. So eating the eating slow part, that just was more of. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's part of that. Just, you know, I want to make sure that other people, you know, are get getting fed fed first. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I do that now. I cook for everyone and make huh. sure that everyone gets fed and I just eat last. And it's just something that I've done. Um, but I mean, you know me, I'm slow. I, I don't, you're you know, a chill guy. That's right. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just laid back. And you know, when, uh, we joke about it when, uh, people come over to our house, like ten, time just disappears. Yeah. And that's, you're you really know, good at living in a now. Right. Right. And that's, yeah. you know, part of this story too, you know, and I, you know that, you know, one of the things that I really, um, you know, push and advocate for is really truly being president. Yeah. You know, where you're at. I just remember you mentioning that it was uh, in regards to the meal that you would savor the meal and go as slow as possible because you didn't necessarily know when the next one was going to come. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, that was really profound. And there are people that can relate to that. Many of us can't. But this idea that uh, you have to be present in that moment, even eating, because you don't know when the next meal is coming. And so it seems like in some ways your whole life has taught you to appreciate literally what's on the table in front of you. Don't worry about the next meal. I mean, this is almost like Jesus talking to the people, right? You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Just be right. present in the moment yep. and let God take care of, of what happens next. But I thought, wow, that really set the stage for your life. And, and it's probably one of the major themes that's come out of your life is this idea of helping busy Americans, especially West Michigan Dutch people, which you've married into, you know, we just, we, we like to exhaust every single minute of the day. There's this tremendous amount of compulsion and guilt. I mean, if we have nothing else to do, we're going to scrub the streets. Right. You know, we have festivals that do this stuff. And now this pandemic is here. And in many ways, many of us are getting a masterclass in just being present. Yeah. You know, you can't always do what you want to do when you want to do it. And the rest of the world lives like that. But in a first world country like the U.S., that's not necessarily the case. So you're growing up, um, the, the, the family is split. You're becoming in many ways the, the man of the house, the oldest. You feel a sense of responsibility. Uh, you're carrying a lot on your shoulders. Probably didn't realize it at the time. And uh, everything from meal time to work to everything. And you were really the first, if not the only, that has come to the faith in your family? Or are there others that have come to the faith as well? Yeah, I wouldn't say like uh, come to the faith. So faith, I mean, we all grew up in the church. Okay. Um, certainly not my my younger siblings as much as us older three, because there's a bit of a gap. Okay. Um, and then uh, my brothers in um in that split. So it was just it, it was just a little different, um, you know, growing up. And I think because 
us three older ones, we you know, you saw the family together. Um, I mean, my dad never came to church with us, but my mom always took us there. Mm. Um, and just that grounding. Um, and I think for me also is that, uh, you know, I, I'm not perfect. I've done a lot of bad stuff, you know, like wrong stuff. Um, that's why you've been a featured speaker at base camp. That's right. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> we, we like guys that have learned from failing. That's right. There's, yeah. there's plenty to pull from. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and that really, I, I think for me, is having that ability to be able to, that redemptive piece of faith, um, I think has always grounded me with that. Um, now, granted, I still do things wrong, um, but, you know, not as much as before. And I... I I have this inner, you know, calm about, you know, everything that, you know, didn't go well. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, so getting back to that faith thing. Um, no, I, I don't believe that, you know, my other siblings, uh, you know, run with church and um, as much as what we think of it is here in West Michigan. So. Yeah. And we'll circle back to that because that's really the uh, the impetus and your highest uh goal i wouldn't say goal your highest hope mm-hmm. for doing that climb was more than just getting to base camp you were hoping that some things would happen along that journey that would have really eclipsed the physicality of of the achievement and you were hoping for something more spiritual to happen between you and and your climbing mate your brother so um i'm trying to get this sequence here right i know that the event happened on everest in 2015 and you did rainier in washington state what year was that yeah that was a couple of years after afterwards okay yep so that wasn't before. So you, you basically shot for the moon. I mean, yeah, we did. wow. I mean, that's not a, you know, for those of you that are not climbers, the Everest base tramp, base trek camp, uh, base camp trek. Wow. I'm really getting the, the words here mixed up is, uh, is one of those iconic, uh, treks in the world. And it's arduous, even though you're only necessarily going to the altitude of Everest base camp, which is about 17, five. Uh, this is not a quick jaunt. I mean, it's up and down and you're, you know, you're climbing, 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 and then to get back, this is a very remote part of the Himalayas. Um, so you really shot for the moon in this thing. What was, um, tell us how did, you know, most people don't just sit down and think, oh, man, I'll just go on a, a trek to Everest base camp. How did that come about, and how did that connect with your brother, and how did this whole journey start? Yeah, well, it goes back to some of that history. So, you know, one of the um, bigger shortcomings that I've always kind of felt was um, not being enough of a father figure of my siblings. Mm. Um, you know, just, and, you know, I mean, after you're, you know, 46 and you look back at all of that stuff, have your own kids, then you realize, you know, um, you know, just you, there's always more that you can do. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, fast forward through all of that. Um, you know, during the time when uh, my wife and I got married, you know, I, I just kind of up and disappeared at that point. Um, you know, I, 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 I'd met this woman and, you know, it was perfect. And uh, it, it was it was God. Um, I mean, he really brought us together. And we still believe that today, just the timing of everything and how it all worked out. Um, but on the flip side of that, um, I, I recognized and realized that, you know, I, I kind of also f- felt like I just ripped myself away from the rest of the family. Hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, I've always kind of felt bad on. Um, but everybody's got to leave the nest. 
Yeah. You know, you need to uh, to make a life for yourself. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, Holly and I had been married for uh, 15 years then at that point already. Mm. Um, so we had gotten married, went back at home for a couple of years, had a bit of a life out there. And then, you know, basically 9-11 happened and then we were ripped again from being out there and then um, planted back over here. So it was just such a quick thing. And I didn't realize... Um, the relationships that I had with my siblings, how much that, you know, ate away at me inside. Um, and I'm sure at them as well. Um, so, and obviously with my mom and my dad as well, you know, um, I don't want this just to be about my siblings. Yeah. Um, now it's hard. I mean, the yeah. family is, uh, you're put into a role or assume a role, uh, that's really not what a 12 year old should have. You right. know, in the ideal scenario, you would grow up as a son and the dad would be there and, the mom together. And, uh, it's, it's hard because you carry some of that weight, you know, unjustly, and then you struggle with, okay, now you're connected with your wife. And biblically, we know that there's a leaving and cleaving, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you've, you've known what it's like to be a son and a father almost at the same time, you know, growing up. So you carry a little bit of that burden and you, um, that seemed like that was some of the, the fertile soil or some of the impetus then for this Everest trek was, oh, this would be a great chance to reconnect with, you know, a brother. Yeah, it really was. And that was, you know, around that time, um, it might have been 2013 that I was thinking about it. Um, and I, I've followed Everest, you know, my, well, I wouldn't say my whole life, but for a while. And um, I, I've always wanted to do that trek. I've always wanted mm. to trek to base camp. So it was around 2013, 2014 um, that I was just trying to reconnect with my brother then at that point. Um, so we'd always keep in touch. But just on, you know, that spiritual level, um, I, I really had this presence on me that I, I needed to witness to my brother, like mm. really witness to him. I mean, he knew that I, I, we went to church and, you know, our, our boys went to church. Um, so he knew that, uh, you know, I was a Christian. And, um, but I'd never really truly pressed upon him, you know, I'm laid back. I can't get the Bible up and thump it across. <laughs> right. his... It doesn't work with family anyway. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I, I can't do that anyway. That's not how I'm wired. But, yeah. Um, so we, uh, and I, uh, getting around that, um, you know, I, I kind of got to the point where it's like, Hey, we need to spend some time together. Hmm. Um, so he said, yep, let's, let's find something to do. So we're like, what do you mean? You want to go, you know, go somewhere or whatever and he goes let's find a, a hike or something like that so I'm like, oh, okay so we started looking um and I, I it was jason my brother that came up with the everest base camp track wow he's like let's check this out i was like uh <laughs> oh okay it's pretty epic yeah yeah it is and when you look at it i mean it's like one of the it's i wouldn't i mean it was difficult um it's not unattainable, which is great. Uh, but I mean, the criteria we wanted was just something that was going to be, we'd be in a foreign country that we both hadn't been to. Um, it would be like no tech so that you wouldn't, you know, have cell phones and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. we'd, you know, shut away from all of that. And, um, you know, we just wanted it to be uh, a time that we'd be able to spend a lot of time together, just an experience for the both of us to have. Uh, and that's where, yeah the uh the trek to base camp came from so now he's birth order your brother is he is fourth fourth okay yep. um well no he's fourth youngest sorry because i said i was the 
you're the oldest, <laughs> right? right. Trying to do the math here. Right. So you come together, you're like, okay, this would be a great thing. Uh, you're like, oh, this would be great. We'll be able to talk about spiritual stuff and yeah. maybe there could be a favorable outcome where he could become a follower of Christ. I mean, all these ideal scenarios play out in your mind and you begin to think, um, you know, wow, wouldn't this be fantastic? And what better place to do it than ever? So it gives you plenty of time, low technology. What could go wrong, right? Yeah. You know, it's a stable mountain. Right. Uh, the food's great, you know, and so you play off all these positives and, and just cannot even fathom uh, what a worst case scenario might look like because we know that most of the people that are going to perish on Everest, they're the ones who add zeros to the dollar signs. You know, once they leave Everest Base Camp and go through the Kumbu Icefall, then all of a sudden you're looking at an extra set of zeros, right. ladders, gaping crevasses, high altitude, all kinds of issues. So you wouldn't think, oh, this trek is arduous, but it's, it's fairly safe. And then uh, something happens. So let's maybe put that, um, that picture up here. So this is a great uh, shot of... Um, Basically, when before the world shook, I mean, literally. So uh, you're taking this picture here, and this is iconic. We actually put it in the promo pieces. Uh, it's the iconic yellow and red and black sign there that leads your way to base camp. And you're so give us an idea here. Everest Base Camp then is what around this yeah, ridge line? Then it's actually up around behind where I am. So okay, so this is this is actually your turning point. Then mm -hmm. you're going to go behind this. And in just a moment, literally within minutes of this shot, right? The whole ground shakes. Just maybe take us to this moment. You've been on the trail for a while. Uh, I know in some of our base camps, you've actually um, been able to walk us through with like a slideshow, which mm -hmm. was fantastic. In fact, when you were at Railtown, you did that, which was fantastic. It felt like a big giant living room and you were walking us through every you know moment. Uh, but we're fast forwarding the tape. So what's it like you're getting up to this point and, and what are you feeling right now? Maybe set the stage for that day of how did that day play out and where should you have been and all those kind of issues. Yeah, so um, it, it was interesting. Uh, I believe we were, this was our sixth day or seventh day um, on the track. So uh, you start off the track out of uh, Kathmandu, you fly into Lukla. Lukla is about 9,000 feet um, and then you're trekking all the way through. Uh, and then we do, uh, we had two acclimatization days, which basically means that you, um, you know, you might, you might sleep at 12,000 feet and then you will climb up a thousand and then come back down. Right. So you get your body used to acclimatizing. Um, so through that whole trek to get us to this point, um, we befriended Jake. Uh, he, he became good mates of ours. Um, and uh where's jake from he's jake's from new york okay yeah he's he's a local boy america well, he's from yes <laughs> from america um and uh, uh jason and him hit him off because they're about the same age yeah um so which was great but and then i was just kind of tagged myself with him um but uh we were I, I would say of the rest of the group the most fit and uh we we become really good um uh, friends with our, you know, the guides and the Sherpas um, and our head guide. And uh, they would let us walk ahead. Mm. Uh, not too far, but, you know, just far enough that we'd kind of be ahead of the group that we weren't really feeling like we were part of the group, yeah. if that made sense. Well, you, you're you saying this very delicately. I know what you're trying to say here because I've... Uh, it, when you travel and, and climb mountains around the world, Americans, quite frankly, and I'm not bashing on Americans because I am one. I'm also partly European, I suppose, because my parents are Dutch immigrants. But as a whole, we, we don't have the best reputation. Typically, we overpack. There's too much stuff. Uh, we, have a we can have a sense of entitlement. 
Um, and sometimes that doesn't bode well on the mountain because the mountain is the great equalizer. Nobody cares, you know, how big your bank account is. Nobody cares really how great or how powerful your country is because the mountain is, it just flattens the plane and everybody's equal. And, and for those that come with ultra mega egos onto the mountain, it doesn't really bode well. And we, you know, as a whole, there, there is some of that vibe. There's that right. tension between Europeans or the British Commonwealth and Americans. And I felt that on trips. Uh, whenever I got in trouble uh, for geopolitical reasons, I always suddenly became a Canadian because <laughs> everybody right. likes Canadians, right? And yep. all I got to do is just say, oh, I'm sorry, eh? You know, let's get play some hockey, eh? You know, so you could kind of easily go into that that whole mode. But I know part of the reason why you were trying to remain separate was there was a part of the group that you necessarily wouldn't hang on, hang around with if it wasn't for this expedition. Yeah, yeah, that was, yes. That was most <laughs> politically saying, correct. Very, yes. very kindly. Yeah. Um, but you did, you liked this guy. And so yeah. the three of you were kind of a group. Yeah, yeah, we did. And, um, you know, it kind of lends into, uh, getting to this point here. Um, you know, cause we're always, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes ahead of the group, you know, they'd say, Hey, we're going to stop up here for lunch. So typically what they would do because those guys are machines. Um, you know, one of the, uh, lead cooks or something like that would just start running and they'd run ahead and prepare and get everything yeah, ready. Yeah, literally run. And you're right. just like, how in uh, the world can these guys do that? It's incredible. So they would be there and we would arrive, then the rest of the group would arrive, so. Would they set your tents up and everything as well? Or, uh, cause you guys tented the whole we time. We did. You didn't do lodges no, or, okay. No, yeah, that's part of the reason why we went with the group that we did. Um, because they uh, followed the exact same route that uh, climbers would take. Okay. So the same acclimatization, the slow pace, getting in, getting acclimatized, getting ready to be able to sleep there at base camp for a while while you're doing your summit bid. Yeah. So that was part of the reason why we went with them. Uh, and the other one was we just wanted to tent all the way through. Hmm. Um, and uh, they cooked for us as well. Um, one of the big reasons why people end up getting sick is because of eating um, uncooked food mm. or eating food in the villages as they go through. Yeah. So we wanted to give ourselves the best success rate of being able to make it. Uh, so that's why we did it this, this way. It's a true trek for you then. I mean, you're not doing oh, a hut to hut thing. Oh, you're, no. Yeah, right. you're, you're out there in the tents, and right. uh, which, quite frankly, is probably healthier too. I mean, the lodges can be just, now that we're in this global pandemic, people right. are thinking about this more, but there's just stuff there, you know, and altitude certainly takes away some of those elements. So um, how long did it take for you to get to this point? And you're just about ready to, you know, round the corner and reach you yeah. know, the goal that you're achieving. But how long have you been on the trail at this point? Then? Yeah, so we've been on the trail for about uh, seven days. But this particular, this was the morning of. So we'd gotten into a little area called Gorek Shep. And that's basically the last kind of uh, hot frontier place before you get to base camp. And I believe it's roughly, yeah, maybe two hours or so hike. Um, from Gorak Shep around the base camp. Okay. Um, so this was the morning of. Uh, we had just come in from Laboche, I believe it was, and in the Gorak Shep that morning. And uh, we were going to stay in Gorak Shep that night and then climb a peak called Kalapatar the next day. Mm. So we had got in early, uh, set our stuff down, and um, we basically wanted to be the first group out. Because, I mean, there's people everywhere. There's people trekking on this right. all the time. And and it's pretty dusty. I mean, this is like, a, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. just very much. I mean, actually, this day here was the first day that we saw any snow or anything. Really? Every other day was, I mean, crystal blue skies. The sun was out. I mean, some days we were walking in shorts. I, it was just incredible. Absolutely perfect until this morning. Hmm. Um, so we get into Gorek Shep 
and uh, we put all our stuff away. And then uh, we wanted to be the first group out. Well, we got down and we're getting ready to go. And we were still waiting on that other rest of our group uh, to come down. So we decided to play a game of cards and um, kind of as we're waiting for them. Um, so they came down. We said we're going to finish our game of cards before we go. So we did. And then we went. So they had Which to is wait unusual. A yes. Uh, everything much. flipped the last. I oh, mean, yeah. Very much. Yep. You, you shouldn't. You should have been here earlier. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. would have put you in harm's way as we'll find out here in just a moment. Yeah. What is a typical day? Because uh, this, again, is like going to the moon for most of us in the Midwest. Uh, like, what does an average day look like? Are you maybe ascending 1,000, 2,000 feet then? And I, I like the whole way that you describe that. And for those of us that are flatlanders, which is all of us here in Michigan or the Midwest, and of course, we'll have viewers everywhere after this has been produce but it's the whole idea of, of uh you know climbing high but camping low yeah. get your stuff up then get back down sleep at that altitude and then the next day or the day after if there's weather issues then you go up to where some of your your gear is stored as well but what's an average day elevation gain and what's it like i mean you see these iconic photos you know these gaping ravines and these rope bridges that you're crossing over with all the tibet prayer flags and napoleon uh prayer flags what what's an average day look like yeah, so um, we'd get up early in the morning. Um, the, the guides would cook breakfast for us, and bless their heart, they wouldn't let us help or do anything. Mm. Um, so that's just the Nepalese people. So they're so just giving yeah. and so kind. Um, I, we didn't come across any bad anything anywhere. In Kathmandu, in all of the villages and everything that we went through, that's just they're so kind-hearted in nature. That's who they are. Um, so we would get up and then basically uh, pack everything up. Um, we Everything is taken in on yaks pretty much. Right. So or yapples, which is kind of like a cross between a cow and a yak. Um, so they would, you know, pack everything up, throw it all on and off we'd go. So we'd head out and then the yaks, actually the yaks would head out before us and then we'd catch them up and then crisscross and all that sort of stuff. So um, elevation gain, it, there would be maybe a couple of thousand um, in a day. But then in some points, you would be descending that as well. Right. Um, because we followed the Dutes River, which is basically, so the Kumbu Icefall, which is, falls into the glacier, which makes base camp, hmm. that um, falls into a river. And then that river, which is going down through there, is called the Dutes River. Um, it's a beautiful, like uh, the, the blue color is hard to explain. Um, like a crystal kind of a blue with white through it yeah probably like a lake louise in canada is something we yeah, would be familiar it's, with it's beautiful but you're constantly crisscrossing over that river and following yeah. it so you're always climbing up down around and all over it's the all place. those minerals so. that are getting emulsified in the glaciers it's just surreal oh yeah yeah like yeah. as you look at it and you're like is this a painting i mean it's just it, I, it's it's a I know, crazy I, blue color i look back on pictures and it just doesn't do it justice at yeah. all i mean it really doesn't you're surrounded by beautiful i mean abba Dabla, and these mountain ranges are just incredible and they're humongous and you just feel so small and insignificant mm. through it all um but it was it was perfect and like, like i said we had great weather up until this point you know and we, we were we we're feeling really good um at this point where base camps at about seventeen thousand feet um, and the highest I'd ever been to was 12,000 feet before. Okay. Uh, so we had done it right. We had, you know, eating right and um, exercising, doing everything the right way. And uh, we we're feeling pretty good on this day. So 
So any premonition of what's about to happen? No. Nothing. Just no. Uh, everything's just going as planned, and this is fantastic. We're going to take a picture. We're going to round the corner, and we're going to be meeting some world-class climbers. And how long would they have let you hang out in in the base camp just for that day then or would you overnight there no we weren't gonna overnight in base camp um probably until they kicked all of us out yeah <laughs> i mean there's hundreds of people there oh, at base it's, camp. it's a city oh yeah the reason why we went uh during this time is because it's the start of the climbing season so people were actually doing their acclimatization nobody was going for a summit on the 25th yeah um but there were people at camp too yeah. So, you know, we wanted to arrive at base camp when stuff was happening. I mean, there's doctors, there's cooks, there's, uh, there's so much stuff going on there. Um, so the plan for us for that day was to just be there for about half a day. Um, you know, see if we can see any celebs or anything, you know, like any of the climbers and that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, just head back to Gorak Shep. So mm. that was the plan. Yeah, the plan, and sometimes the plans get interrupted. So um, we're going to show a video here in just a moment, so please hang with us. But what is the first inclination that you had that something was askew? Because this picture is snapped, and then what are we looking at minutes later? Like, uh, Not even minutes. I would say seconds. Seconds. So there were a couple of pictures taken that were like this. Um, and then as we were stepping down off of those boulders, that's when... Did you hear it first or feel it first? Or felt kind of it. Felt it. Yeah. The ground was literally shaking. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yep. And then it just kept shaking and shaking. And you can see those boulders that were standing on there. Those started to roll around like marbles. Wow. Uh, were the ravens, there's high altitude ravens, was any wildlife doing anything weird? Because you hear that about earthquakes and tsunamis, that the right. sonar abilities that they have that we don't have, they, the wildlife acts weird. Right. None no. of that is, or I, that you could see or hear. No, I don't remember hearing anything like, yeah, you, you see movies and that sort yeah. of stuff. And there's like, a, you know, the birds fly, then there's the gunshot, you know, yeah. that sort <laughs> right. of a thing. Well, no. the tsunamis especially, they can just they just know something's wrong and they're going up to, and even in the mountains, they can kind of sense these things long before we can. So let's play this clip again, and it's April 25th. You've now been on the trail for a week. Things are going great. Um, no indication anything is going to happen. Almost like uh, what we've been dealing with for the last couple of weeks where you get in the middle of March and, hey, everything's going great. You know, everybody's looking forward to spring break. And then within a week, the whole world gets turned upside down. So maybe kind of juxtapose uh, our current situation with this particular day and uh, we can learn from this particular episode. Let's go ahead and play that video. Fox News alert now, new information on the panic and fear for dozens of climbers as they try to outrun a monstrous avalanche on Mount Everest when the earthquake shook. Oh, decided to take this trek even though it's one of the hardest ones around to do um, just because we would get to spend a lot of time together. So we hiked every day with the intention of getting to base camp. As we trekked we had awesome weather, great blue skies, the sun was out every day, um, our guides were fantastic, 
the people we were trekking with were fantastic as well. My brother and I, we really got to bond uh, during this time as we were on this journey. We got to uh, the day um, to get to base camp and um, we came into a place called Gorek Shep which is uh, roughly about three, three and a half hours trek from the actual uh, base camp. So it's kind of an odd day. Weather was starting to come in, um, it was overcast, a little eerie, a little different. So a party trekked out and there's an iconic sign. It's a yellow sign that has uh, base camp this way with an arrow on it. My brother and I um, weren't sure if we should stop and take a picture there or not. We kind of went back and forth on it and decided, you know, the weather could be bad on the way back, so we'll just stop and take a picture. I uh, handed my camera over to our guide and uh, we got up on the rocks right next to the sign and he snapped one picture. As soon as he snapped that picture, um, the ground started to shake. Instantly, we heard this roar, a sound that to this day I don't think I'll ever be able to describe properly. I realized that uh, an avalanche was coming at us. It rose 30, 40, 50, 60 feet. It continued to get big and then all of a sudden I was just encased in snow. I couldn't breathe. It was thick. Um, I felt like I was almost underwater just sucking in particles. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't hear anything. Everything was just this fog of white. Then maybe a couple minutes later, um, I. <laughs> I heard, I heard my brother call and uh, it was good to hear his voice, to hear that he was okay. I looked down the ridge, I saw the rest of our party, um, although they were shaken and uh, knocked to the ground, covered with two to three feet of snow, um, they were all starting to get up and were okay. But as we were leaving, we got our first glimpse of uh, base camp and the devastation that uh, the avalanche had in that area. Um, once we got to that point, our guides broke down again. Um, almost, almost more so than what they did before. Because they had realized that uh, if we had have gone over that ridge, if we hadn't have stopped um, to take pictures for 15 minutes, um, if my brother and I had been ahead of the rest of the group, which we were every other day, um, we probably wouldn't be here today. There are a lot of people there that uh, didn't come back. So, um, pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure traumatic for you to watch that again, just to have those um, those feelings come back. In fact, we were tentatively planning a year ago before I had my little cardiac arrest. And uh, it, it was, you know, probably providential that this hadn't happened, but we were in serious talks about going back 
Right. And I wanted to make sure that you were part of our, of our team again, first of all, because we could just uh, follow your footsteps and you could be kind of our in-house guide, if you will. But secondly, is just to capture on camera uh, with you right by that rock again and feel like what it feels like now, mm. what would have been five years removed. So tremendous amount of chaos. The sun is blotted out. It looks like a white tsunami is coming at you. Uh, you can't even breathe. You can't see. A total complete disorientation uh, to the extent that you I mean did you think this was it this is much this must be what it's like to die you know there was a um, I, I didn't think of that uh, in that moment but after it now um, I feel that I did have a split second of that yeah. um, so basically as the earthquake shook it was a 7.8 uh, it rumbled everything around. Which is massive. Huge, huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was about 50 miles away from where we were at. Wow. The epicenter of it. Um, and uh, it, I, I'd never been in an earthquake before. I, I didn't know how to react, what to do. Um, and it just sort of rumbled what felt for, I don't know, maybe a minute or two. Um, not long. Um, but, I mean, it was enough that it, I, you feel that, you know, to your bone. And um, as it was happening, a uh, funny story, uh, we were, uh, that picture where you could see um, where we were standing there, and then our base camp was around the back. On this side of it um, was Kalapatar, which was a, a mountain that we were gonna climb uh, mm. the next day. Uh, so we we're kinda, I mean, it was about maybe 200 feet away, um, but we were kinda trapped in a section there. And there's this massive mountain above you that you're, uh, thinking, well, is something going to come off the top of it? Right. You know, come down. Um, right at the base of that mountain is a, a cabin. And um, uh, Nepalese guys came running out of it as the earthquake was happening, and they were yelling and dancing and singing. And it what, was... What were they thinking? I, it just... I, we Maybe it was a religious thing. I had no idea, but it was such a surreal thing that, you know, not knowing what to do, having yeah. this... And you, you just full of fright yeah and here's these yahoos over here dancing and singing and almost you know, like a chicken all... running around with their head cut off right. type it thing. Was it's crazy. just a weird reaction to it right yeah. so that had happened and that i mean the earthquake now that i think about it must have been for a couple minutes because they had joined us before the avalanche had hit hmm. and they were standing next to us um and basically uh, it, it settled down and it went eerily quiet and then that's when we heard the crack. Um, there was uh, off to our, so we were faced this way, if you can kind of imagine it. So off to our left, uh, there was basically, it sounded like a crack and a boom. Um, and out of the corner of our eye, we could start to see some white. And uh, Badri kind of looked at us and he was our head guide. He's the guy that took the picture. Um, and he just yelled avalanche. And um, as we turned and looked, we saw instead of the white off to our left, it was coming right at us. Hmm. So there was a cloud of white that hit the ridge that was in front of us. And then the white was just kind of, you know, this, the, the first part of it um, just filled the sky. And then all of a sudden you could see this thin little sliver of the actual white and avalanche and everything get up over that ridge. And then that's when everyone just took off. Yeah. 
Um, Hundreds of tons of ice was just collapsing on itself and yeah. creating a wave. Literally. Right. Yeah. So basically what happened, there was two avalanches that happened. One came down through base camp and then one came across um, the uh, across the glacier and hit us the other way. Mm. So two went opposite ways. Um, and, you know, getting back to that point of thinking, you know, was this it? Um, my brother and Jake took off the other, they took off with the other guys. Um, I instinctively just jumped down behind one of those boulders um, and just tucked up. Uh, the rest of our group, uh, they were ahead of us in a little bit of a gully. So where we were, there was a gully down and then the ridge. So they were down um, in the gully there. I kind of took one quick look at them and uh, most of them were on the ground from the earthquake um, just to you know stabilize themselves. And then, um, yeah. Then it just went white. Um, I, I mean, w I'm still here, so you know we're all still here. Yeah. Um, but I, it it was just an experience that I it's very difficult to explain. Um, as it was happening, you know, the air got thick, very very cold, and I could just feel like I was breathing in snow, mm. even though it wasn't snow snow, but it just felt like everything became so thick and white um, and to the point where I just, I couldn't even see my hand in front of my wow. face. And that lasted for probably several minutes, I would think. Yeah, yep. So complete disorientation. You're probably thinking at this point, um, okay, I just survived something, but in your mind you're probably thinking, there's no way anybody in base camp could be living through this because the whole sense of disorientation, I mean, it started as a cloudy day to begin with, so you mm -hmm. don't have that contrast of a bluebird sky compared to everything else. So you're. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of things going on in your mind. Obviously, the first thing that you're thinking about is where's my brother, right? right? So you go to what's most famil familiar and familial, and um, then that connection is remade, and then you're bumping into people that are having, you know, different, uh, yeah, it's almost like a 9-11 type of thing, just shock. Yeah. And it does weird things to people, and everybody reacts a little bit different, but some people are angry, some people are just lethargic, some people are in despair, some people are doing nothing, they're frozen, they're immobilized. Again, in many ways, like our current pandemic, there are those that will just not get out of their house. And there are those that, that's not an issue. And, and you have this stark contrast, it's this delicate neurology that's going on. So we know after the fact that there was about 22 so climbers that mm -hmm. did perish um, at base camp. And now, for those of you that are into Everest type stuff, uh, instead of having a wide uh, camp, if you will, uh, it's like a singular line. So instead of something a mile wide, they have something that's like a couple miles long. Mm -hmm. And the logic of that is if this thing ever happens again, that it has to go a very specific line to uh, knock the whole village out and to give it less proximity or less uh, acreage and real estate for it to devastate. So, uh, but the real devastation, and this is where you'll walk into it afterwards, is what happened below. I mean, thousands of people perished. Uh, historic landmarks that are sacred to mm -hmm. the Buddhist religion and to the people there just utterly destroyed. And that's where a lot of us come into the news story of, you know, these uh, villages that are just absolutely destroyed. And a lot of people don't realize that there were actually, like you had mentioned, when you got there uh, April 25th, there were people that camped too. Oh, yeah. So the, now you've got people that are stranded because the Kumbo Icefall, if you've seen the pictures with the ladders and the gaping crevasses, uh, that's all destroyed. You cannot get through the Kumbo Icefall now. It's all collapsed. It's just a jumble of, of, of a mess. And so now you've got people like, oh, how are we going to get these people down? 
I mean, getting up to Camp One is very precarious. It takes the world's best helicopter pilots to pull that off. So you've got people that are stranded. You've got people that are down below. What are you hearing right now? I mean, I remember you talk, telling the story at some of our base camps that, you know, you had thought there was just complete devastation and everybody on the mountain is dead and every, and everything is destroyed. I mean, what were the, some of the rumors that were floating around in this chaos? Yeah, it, it was crazy. So after it had happened and we kind of picked everybody up, you know, I reunited with my brother and Jake and uh, we were all okay. And did um, the rest of your team, the guys that were ahead, the American group, then yep. join you at that point? Yeah, we okay. went down to them in the gully, made sure everybody was okay. And that's kind of the point when we were down there. Then all of the guides, they were, they were happy. They were singing and hugging and just... they had lived. <laughs> right. And all of us were like, what the... You know, what just happened? Yeah. But they... I think they're familiar with not necessarily that magnitude, but... I mean, stuff happens at Everest, you yeah. know. So, um, and the previous year, there had already been um, a disaster there at Avalanche, which took 16 Sherpas um, in the Kumbu Icefall. The climbing company that I went with on all my five, actually three of the five continental summits, they lost uh, like five or six Sherpas in that. So I feel yeah. one step removed. I knew the head Sherpa and he was no longer climbing. Uh, he was at base camp, but it was, yeah, it was terrible. So it was devastating for them. Now and two then, years in a row. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so that was just a, an odd, surreal thing. Um, Jake, Jason, and I tried to go up to the ridge to because we instinctively knew something was wrong, that people had died, and we wanted to help. We had no business helping. I mean, right. we, we well, didn't you're, know. You're like prohibited. Your guides yeah. won't let oh, you yeah. do anything. They, they called us back. So we make it all the way back. Uh, we trek back to Gorek Shep, so the two huts that I'd mentioned that we started out from, and just kind of sat down, and just nobody said anything. We just sat and looked at each other. Um, that place was packed because there were other groups there that were heading out for that day. And we, as we were walking back, we were passing groups that were at that stage of getting ready to come out. So we were passing people that were going through their own thing, then realizing that they could have also been just part of what had happened. Mm. Um, I mean, the avalanche was that big that it ended up, I mean, there was more snow and ice and everything at Gorek Shep than when we left. Wow. And, and I mean, we were already probably two, 300, you know, feet away from that area. So I just, yeah, it would have been surreal to see that thing from a GoPro or, a, you know, like a, a, a... Well, that adjusted the mountain's height as well. Oh, yeah, it and did. It knocked right. off the Hillary Step, which was one of the more formidable, you know, obstacles on the south side. They, it's it's not like it's not there, but it's certainly much less than what it used to be in yeah, years it, past. Yeah, it changed the topography of the mountain in that in that area. But when we got back to Garak Shep, I mean, that's when, you know, the, the whispers and stuff had started going on and... We'd started to hear reports that Kathmandu was gone, like gone. Just wiped out. Yeah, that yeah. there was a massive crack through the airport and the runway. Nobody was getting out. Um, and, of course, all of this was coming in through sat phone periodically. Uh, we had heard that base camp was gone. Gone. We were told hundreds of people had died there. Mm. Um, and it was just insane. Um, until we had been there for about an hour. And then uh, this group walks in and it turned out to be, I think it was like four, four Aussies that walk in and sit down next to us. And all four of them sat there and just wept. Mm. I, I have never seen a stronger group of men um, come in so just defeated. 
and sat down and wept. And um, we kind of gave them their space for a little bit and then went over and uh, talked with them. And uh, they happened to be between both of the avalanches. Wow. Uh, they saw the one rip through base camp and then come across and uh, hit us. And uh, they were fortunate not to be a part of either one of them. Um, so they were actually the first group out for that day, hiking out for, from, uh, from Gorak Shep. Um, maybe a couple of hours after that, the first couple of people started to show up from base camp. Um, they were in bad shape because um, the trek wasn't there anymore. The trail wasn't there anymore. Wow. So they were basically trying to find their way back. Um, and then, you know, during that time, I mean, th there are much more qualified people there than us. Uh, and they had already started to create a triage tent. Um, things were happening very, very quickly. Uh, and speaking of just um, mountaineering, um, I guess, uh, yeah, the uh, when we got back into Gorak Shep, Peter Hillary was there, hmm. and I had a conversation with him. He was asking where we were, and Peter Hillary happened to be the son of Edmund Hillary, the guy that first climbed it. So. Yeah, a yeah. Kiwi. Yep, that's right. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know there's a little bit of a tension there between the Aussies and Kiwis, but uh, yeah. you know, he was the right guy at the first summit. That humble man mm -hmm. and did a lot for the sh and still does. Still I mean, does. the legacy yeah. there, the schools and the orphanages, and it's just phenomenal that uh, a man that was just a humble beekeeper, you know, became. Right. Uh, it was a really important moment, really in the overall Commonwealth history, because it was shortly thereafter, or it might have been before, when Elizabeth was crowned queen. So this was a great story coming up out of the you know the ashes, if you will, of World War II and believing in the rebirth of, of, uh, of greater hope. So you're making your way down, uh, absolute chaos. You're, you're, you're hearing that there are reports that people have survived and you're meeting people that have survived. Uh, lots of, of just shock, you know, 2,000 yard stare, uh, men and women that are just destroyed in the inside, can't believe what they've seen, trying mm -hmm. to process. Um, you're getting down into villages that are now even in worse shape. Um, how did you uh, exit out of the region? And then I want to talk about some of the takeaways that you had from the story. Yeah. Um, so the following day, we stayed in Gorek Shep that night. And I mean, there were earthquakes every day until After we shocks. left. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that night, there was a 6.4 when we were all asleep, you know. To wake um, you up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you're probably free. everybody getting out of their tents and just like, okay, let's just visualize oh, yeah. what's going on here. Yeah, so I remember after we uh, after it had happened and we were sitting there, you know, for that couple of hours, there was one happened then and everybody ran out except for the fellow that was tending the bar or whatever, the little makeshift bar. And he's like, what are you all going to do? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's coming down, it's coming down. <laughs> well, that, did you see the footage of the two German guys, you know, that were actually at base camp? Oh, yeah. Like, the yeah, fact, the ground is shaking, you know, and then all of a sudden they, you know, there's a bunch of expletives, actually many yeah. expletives, and then they jump into their tent and it becomes literally like they're in a wash machine. Right. I mean, just, you know, and they have the GoPro going on just like your brother did, and it's yep. insane. So you're walking out of this and, you're encountering just more and more trauma. Uh, it's layered. Yeah, it, it was it was difficult um, because on the one side, our guides had to get us out, and you know, talking about you know the the information that was coming down the line is that all of a sudden it had become chaotic at Lukla, where we had to fly out of. Um, there Which, was, by the way, is one of the world's. It may be the world's worst airport. I think it's third on the list. It's if you've seen <laughs> pictures, it's crazy. It, I mean, you have the runway and then it drops. Oh yeah, yeah like probably yeah, a mile. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and then when you're landing, it lands 
at, into a cliff. Like oh there's a gosh. mountain there. So you yeah. got to start. I mean, it's awesome. But um, so to their credit, our guide's credit, they, they really pushed us along. And um, we, we, we wanted to, every village you'd go through, you know, there would be a, a houses down or there would be a body or there would, you know, just so much mourning as you're going through there. It's um, like a massive, it's a massive grave. Yeah. People are buried under the rubble and they're not going to get to them in time. Right. Yep. If at all. Right. So it, it was, looking back on that, you know, it was difficult to just kind of fast track through that um, because you have this sense of wanting to be able to help people. But on the flip side of that, you know, you've got your guides and you're kind of their livelihood and they need to get you out as yeah. well. Um, so it wasn't, um, it, I believe it was three days that we got back to um, Nemchi, which is kind of like the party town of uh the the himalayan area um and uh that's when i first spoke to my wife about it um, mm. so did she know prior to that had the team leader communicated that the team is okay or was she still in the dark uh, she was still in the dark wow. so um, those are three terrible yeah. days for her i'm sure yeah and they um the the group that we were tracking with they contacted everyone and said that hey you've probably heard because i mean it was world news oh sure um, something's happened. Uh, everybody is safe and everybody's okay. And that's what she'd heard. Uh, sh she didn't know that we were actually in it yeah. um, or a part of it. Just that, you know, something had happened, but everybody's okay. Mm. Um, so that was, for me, that was a another very surreal uh, moment. When we were in Gorek Shep before we left, I just shot off a quick text. No idea if they were going to get it or not. I said, hey, I love you. Uh, we're at Gorik Shep. We're going to go to base camp. We're finally here. Um, I'll try to hit you back when I can. Wow. So how long were you delayed then getting out? We're, I'm sure airport issues and just... Right. We weren't. So to, wow. So they really fast-tracked credit. Yeah. They, they pretty much... I remember the day that we left out of Lukla. So after we'd hiked all the way back down, we got into Lukla. And Lukla was crazy. And it... But since um, the 25th, we'd been hiking for five days yet. Mm. So all of the rescue efforts, everything that was going on up at base camp, helicopters flying through every day, all the time, um, when they could to get up to base camp, we'd see them fly over. And then, of course, everything was happening then in Kathmandu and in all of the other villages right. that were devastated. You know, those rescue efforts had already happened. So by the time we got into Lukla, um, we thought that things would have been sorted out or calmed down but it was just chaos mm. um most people when they travel in there if they're not going with a group they uh kind of rely on just figuring it out so to get out if you don't have anything booked then you're out of luck and yeah. you're stuck yeah and still we're hearing reports that you know flines are not playing out of flying out of Kathmandu, so people just get stuck um, our guides, we, we kind of had an, uh, a night in Lukla before we left. And um, I guess we weren't too worried, but kind of a little bit worried that we weren't going to get a flight out. Mm. But um, they pretty much took over the place and just, all right, this is our plan. Get on. We're going. Go. Yeah. And you do it. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's, you're on the hook, you know, and, right. and they're going to bring you home safe. So, um, and everything instinctually inside of you is like, man, I want to help. Yeah. I, want, I want to do something here. And yet right. they have a professional obligation to carry you through. Yeah. Every mountain expedition I've been on, 
uh, you're forbidden to rescue anybody. They're like, you're just responsible to get yourself. We're responsible for you and you're not responsible for anybody else. And that's right. hard because it goes against uh, really your code of honor as a man. You know, you mm-hmm. want to help, you want to do something. So you get back home. Um, we didn't really tackle, uh, you know, some of the conversations that you may have liked to have had or right. what the eventual outcome was with your brother. But we know from some of our base camp meetings that there wasn't some uh, climactic, you know, spiritual moment that, uh, you know, would have brought some closure to that. So that story is still continuing. That journey is still going on. But to give ourselves some time for Q&A, what was the, and it may be a couple, but maybe the top two or even just one, if you want to limit it to one, what was a, a takeaway that you had after this whole thing settled? Uh, what was your big takeaway? Oh, man. Um, I, I would think that the big takeaway for me is that um, you, you can't, yeah, going back to wanting to be able to, um, you know, witness to my brother is that uh, I had a conversation with someone recently, which is what I love about base camp is just conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's had a story or had an experience. Um, the conversation I had with the one follower, you know, he, he came to the realization too, is that, you know, we, we can't make somebody full follow the faith. We can't make someone a God thing. Yeah. No, no, that's, I mean, we can lead by an example. Yeah. Um, but I, I can't make that decision for my brother. Um, I think that's one of the, biggest takeaways that I took from that is that I was all gung-ho to do this. Um, and it's not in my time. It's in his time. Yeah. Um, and it's a story. It continues. Yes. You planted seeds and oh, yeah. it was a chapter and who knows, maybe we can have your brother come back with us too. I would love more than that yeah. to happen. So, but I, just that. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, when we started just about being present, um, that text message that I had have sent might have been the last thing that my wife had have gotten that my boys would have known. Hmm. Um, you know, what life did I leave behind? You know, as I mentioned before, I'm not a perfect man. Um, and, you know, I, I still struggle through things. Um, but I, I want to be able to give people a bottle or an elixir of something and say, here, take this. This is what it feels like to, you know, possibly just be gone and then think back on what you should have done or what you didn't do. Yeah. And then go and resolve that or fix and it. And you're almost wanting to, to drink to. that as well yourself, to just remind yourself Absolutely. of, of bringing yourself back to that moment of, okay, uh, there's nothing guaranteed. Control right. is an illusion. Things can happen that are way beyond uh, the script that we would write. But if we just trust God and stay you know, in the story, that some good things can happen, but we have to stay in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you that are viewing, whether you're doing it live with us or you catch it afterwards, that's really, I think, uh, one of the main messages that we can walk away from. And, and Clayton probably noticed this as well, and it's part of his story. It's part of uh, a lot of people's stories. But uh, the big question for climbers is, or anybody that's into extreme adventure, is the why. And uh, George Mallory, who was mm. someone who had uh, attempted to climb Everest with British uh, expeditions in 1921, 22, and 24, and it ultimately perished there. They saw him at 26 and a half thousand feet through the, the telescope, and then he vanished into to legend. Um, and they found his body actually in 1999. But they asked him, you know, why, why are you climbing Everest? And he's like, well, because it's there. Hmm. And that's a great, uh, you know, poetic answer, uh, but it doesn't really deal with some of the stuff that's under the hood. 
And I found after coming through my own healing journey and processes that many people are, are, are doing extreme adventures. They're on climbs or, or North Pole treks or whatever uh, because, they, uh, because they can't do 18 inches from the head to the heart. They have to go 18,000 feet. They have to go 18,000 miles. And there's something about the human anatomy that is very uh, interesting in that if you can't do the internal journey, the inward journey, you have to always externalize the pain. If you can't internalize it and process it and get out of your head into your heart where all the deep things in life happen, then unknowingly and unwittingly, you will actually find yourself um, processing trauma externally in the hopes that somehow the mountain will teach you something or a trek. And it does. There's a cathartic value for sure. Uh, I, I'm not one to deny that. But the mountain can't heal you. Uh, nature really doesn't have the ability to touch deep things inside of you. It is an epistle that we learn from Paul, so it does emulate and gives light to the character and image of Christ, but it's Christ alone that really has the ability and the power to heal. To, so to the extent that nature and Christ cooperate, or you allow that cooperation to happen, is the extent that you'll actually find healing. So hikes are wonderful, treks are wonderful, climbing is a wonderful thing, but those activities alone can't touch the deep trauma that is uh, per pervasive and um, uh, endemic, if you will, or, or uh, is natural for our human journey as, as uh, people. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage you to think about that for a moment. I know that's some deep stuff there, but I found uh, after doing a lot of extreme adventures and having some special ops guys talk with me on Mount Ararat and help me to understand that trauma is uh, a delicate surgery and it's not limited to just um, people who have experienced actual battlefield um, experiences, combat experiences, but it's, it's for those of us that have had moments in our life where uh, the topography of our, of our interior geography was uh, experienced upheaval. And we all know what those moments feel like. It feels frozen. It feels very disquieted. Uh, the landscape disappears. We lose our sense of orientation. But I will tell you this, that over time, if you stay in your story and you get involved in community and you have some church that you're a part of and you practice contemplation, which is another word for prayer, being silent before God and listening and also uh, getting involved in some counseling and therapy that we talked about two weeks ago with John Collier, that when those four streams uh, converge together, you will find that, the, that the, the future is no longer something that you should fear and the past is no longer something that should punish you, and it allows you to be present. It allows you to be now. And uh, it's a haunting thing to live your life never uh, being able to be now. And so I would encourage you. You don't have to go to Everest experience these things, but it provides a dramatic template and a parable for us to kind of bring closure to uh, some certain chapters in our life of why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And I just really appreciate you, Clayton, coming on and um, sharing. Uh, I'd love to get you back there to Everest. It's on our, it's, it's on our uh, plate of things to do as Grace Explorations. If I go, I'm not going to go alone. I want to take a community of, of men and women on this trek and uh, make a little mini documentary out of it and talk about why we do base camp uh, because of the, all the reasons that we've talked about, that the air is thick, the communication is there, the medic tent is there, all the good things that happen on a mountain happen at base camp. So we're going to do some Q&A here uh, real quick, but before we do, um, we just have one or two slides here real quick that I'd like to get to. Again, an opportunity to give if you've just tuned in or tuned in late. Uh, we want to give everybody an opportunity to give, and you can go to graceexplorations.com. This is a partner-supported ministry. Uh, it's a nonprofit ministry, so whatever you give is tax-deductible. You can simply go to graceexplorations.com 
and click on the donate button and give whatever uh, you can. Um, we would appreciate that. It costs us about $500 per episode, so if you want to sponsor that, that would be great, or give whatever you can and feel led to. Uh, secondly, let's talk about Michael Vorce. Michael is another great friend of the ministry. Uh, Michael is an individual who has a dramatic story as well. He stole millions before God saved him. Uh, he was on American Greed, uh, which is not necessarily a badge of honor, but uh, what I love about Michael is that he has uh, owned his story, went through several years of incarceration, was a big story, a national story actually, that found its origin here in West Michigan. Um, and there were tens of millions of dollars that was involved, and he served his time, and I uh, just want to applaud the courage of this man to uh, show up at many of our base camps in person and uh, speak about a very difficult time in his life and own the mistakes that he's made and allow God to uh, receive glory through that. So we're going to put him on our live stream here in two weeks. It's a great story, and I'm just so excited about getting something positive uh, on the Internet about Michael Voris. He's a great friend, and he's a great uh, man, a great family man, and it's just uh, really cool to see the way God is turning something that uh, uh, is turning something very positive into something that was once just all negative. So join us on uh, May 31st for that. And uh, yeah, let's take a, a couple of Q&A here, and then um, we can close in a, in a word of prayer here in a moment. So the first question for you, Clayton, is how did you transition back to a normal life as a husband, a guy living everyday life? How do you go from this big, giant, epic story to doing what you do every day? Right. Well, I think it is a journey still every day. Um, you know, for me, it was it was a profound thing. Uh, but before this had happened, I was very much an introvert. I'd be very quiet. I would be the guy in the back of the room. I'd listen, um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily throw myself out there. Uh, since this, I've thrown myself out there. And um, I, I try to do that daily in everything that I do. Uh, and it almost goes back to that elixir, knowing that, you know, any given day, any of us could not be here anymore. Yeah. Whatever it is. I mean, get in the car and something happened, you know. But, I mean, I, I just always want to be present every time where I'm at. Um, you know, my boys want to play another game on the PlayStation. I'll go do it with them. You know, those sorts of things. Um, be attentive to my wife. Um, you know, go back on those relationships with my siblings. Um, you know, I just, I, I, one thing that this has done for me, I think, which has um, been something that I, I needed, I think has just been um, almost a reset. Uh, so in some ways I feel like that whole process is a forgiveness thing again, hmm. um, where I've gone through this event and then I'm able to now go back through everything and, you know, do what, uh, yeah, what I need to do. So that's always the, you know, some of the most depressing moments for a lot of people that do great adventures are what comes on the tail end because you get this adrenaline rush and you actually become a junkie after a while. Some climbers right. call it feeding the rat. It's just this insatiable appetite to always have to do more. But I think when you look under the hood, that's what I love about you is you're not afraid to be introspective. And you probably found out that there's not a lot of uh, like Christian climbers running around. They tend to either be pantheists, you know, where they're worshiping nature and uh, confusing the idea that, yeah, God may be infused in everything, but God is not everything. God is not that mountain. You don't need to deify that mountain, but the, the aura uh, uh, of, of God is everywhere. He owns mm. every square inch of creation, but he's not necessarily his creation. So, um, or they become, quite frankly, uh, Buddhists. Uh, many of my climbing friends that were 
neutral when it came to religion had experiences in the Himalaya and because the uh, Sherpas were just such mm-hmm. fine quality human beings humble I could see that ego was deconstructed um, which is the opposite of Western civilization everything we do is built on the ego in many ways uh, and they deconstructed to the point where we're like you know what I want to be like that guy uh, right. ultimately theologically they end up in a quagmire um, but there's character traits that I think we can learn from, and which is one of the reasons why I'd love to go to Nepal is I think some, the Sherpa are some of the finest human beings I've ever right. met. I don't agree with their end result theologically, but as a person, as a human, fantastic people, strongest per ounce that you'll find of any human, and just oh. giving uh, effusive that way. They're just wonderful. So here's another question. Uh, what helped you settle in your mind and heart that you needed to follow your guides rather than stay and help? <laughs> Um, that's a tough question. I, I think more of that is, uh, you know, you go back to that altruism and wanting to help, um, you know, and then I, I, I don't think it was, took very long for us to realize that we're out of our element. Yeah. I mean, we'd been out of our element since when we landed in Kathmandu. <laughs> like, where would you even start? I right, mean, I, it's I just no idea. What and do I you mean, do? You pick up that brick. I mean, how do you how do you even know who to save or what to do? Right, it's and overwhelming. We, we had you know no business going over that ridge because we had no idea what was there. I mean, the the trek had been gone anyway. To be able, the trail had been gone to be able to get to base camp anyway. So, hmm. um, you know, and then as we're walking back out and through. You know, I, yeah, we, we felt bad, you know, walking past some of these villages and not stopping and helping. Um, but again, to their credit, you know, we were under the care of those guides and they, we had to stick to a plan to be able to get back out. And that's what they did. Um, so, yeah, it, it was, it was difficult. Yeah. Well, it, it almost, um, it, it gives this whole idea of uh, there is privilege right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're both Western guys and we've paid a lot of money and we have the wherewith at all to hire these people to make sure that we're safe. And uh, you, then you notice the disparity of people who don't have the connections. They don't have the guide. They don't have uh, a piece of paper that says, I'm responsible for you. And you walk right through these human tornadoes of wreckage and you begin to realize, wow, there really is um, a different class system here. It feels strange because you almost feel um, yeah, kind of, oh, I did in several occasions where it was like all these people, like when we went back to Ararat five summers in a row and you realize that all the stuff that the uproar that some of our expeditions would cause, we didn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah. We jump on a plane, you know, and head back to America and talk about our adventures. Right. Meanwhile, the people that were part of our group, uh, that live there, um, quite frankly, some of them actually gave their life for it. Uh, and you kind of walk away from that saying, man, that's just, uh, that shows you the class divide here of people that live in huts that are literally made out of cow manure, mm-hmm. are illiterate uh, shepherds on Mount Ararat compared to us Americans. And uh, I don't know, it's a strange, I don't like that feeling. I don't even know what to do with it. But you notice the disparity of people who have and those that have not. And you find that you're in the have camp and you don't know how to rectify that because the other camp is so large and it's so overwhelming. You don't even know where to start. Right. Yeah. And that question kind of pulls at my heartstrings a little bit. You know, I just, if I, I don't like talking about regrets, but if there was one thing that I wish we had have done more was to help. Yeah. You know, I, when we, by the time we got into Kathmandu, it had already been, you know, that five days, that six days and we got there 
and th there was nobody living in houses there. They were all living in tents and there weren't enough tarps around wow. anywhere because they were fearful because there'd been like shocks every day. And this I, is high altitude. It's cold. I oh, mean, yeah. these people are right. freezing. Yep. Yeah. And it was just, I, yeah, devastating to see all of that and like not be able to do anything. Yeah. Because it feels like, well, because of your contract and and uh, the responsibility the guides have it insulates you from it mm -hmm. it's weird it's like it's going all around you but it's not impacting you it is because right. you witness but you're right. in this bubble and you go through this tragedy in a bubble and then you jump in an airplane and mm -hmm. then you go back to another then, bubble right and you just want to pop that but to do that then it's like oh my gosh then uh, where do you even start right. um, so i would ask you one question uh if we don't i don't think we have any more here um, at least that I have uh, listed is uh, what would bring you back or why would you want to go back? Cause some people would be like, you know what? Um, that didn't end well. And I would rather not visit that again. Uh, what? Cause we've talked about this for now a year and a half, maybe mm -hmm. even two years now. What's the engine now that's driving you to, to go back? You know, I have always been someone that I, I don't let fear dictate what I do. You know, like I, I'm not going to let that experience, um, you know, taint um, wanting to go there. Mm, so that's interesting. And then part of that also is I, I'm a, I'm a man. I didn't get there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's one of <laughs> it the was things just around that, the bend. That's one of the things that you know, um, Jake and you know my brother Jason, we talk about, and we talked about possibly going back there this year. Uh, just because it had been five years and um, as it turns out it probably was a good thing that we didn't plan yeah. on doing that but um, you know it, just that uh, wanting wanting to complete it right um, it's it's undone right it's yeah. just one of those things that you know I, I just I I'd always wanted to to get there and still haven't yet I mean it was tragic what had happened um, so tragic and so thankful that uh, the good Lord saw fit to bring us out of it. Um, but it still feels unfinished. Yeah. That, that would be, that would be part of the reason for wanting to, to go back and then just kind of live through that again, you know, relive the, the purpose of me wanting to do that to witness to my brother, mm. you know, kind of rehash that a little bit. And then everything that God did, you know, to me, um, coming back through that in my mind and my journey and figuring that out. So, Well, that's a good word. Let's uh, close on that, and I'll have a word of prayer here. But uh, what Clayton said is, is actually incredibly important and applicable for our day and age, and it's this idea of, of what do you base your decisions on? And uh, I'm not going to turn this into something political, but it is a primary question that we all have to ask ourselves is, um, are you going to be a person whose first emotion is fear? Uh, with any decision that you make or is it going to be based on faith and again there's discretion and there's a lot of uh, real estate in between those two things but I like what he said is is uh, not making his decision based on fear and not doing something just because you're afraid because courage actually comes out of fear um, we don't have courage unless we have something that we're actually afraid of right so I like uh, I think it was Mark Twain or somebody said that courage is actually fear that it said its prayers so hmm. it's not denying that fear is there because it's there, um, and that's okay. Right. There's healthy uh, aspects to fear the same way it would be with a lion or, or something that could actually kill you. You have a respect and a fear there, and I think uh, that reverence is also applicable in our relationship with God. Um, I didn't put this quote up, and I should have, but I'm just thinking about it now, and then we'll close. 
uh, Spurgeon said something to the effect that um, when you are afraid of God, and I know that that word has a lot of elasticity to it, but we can also use that word reverence, although I think fear and respect also fits in with a lion analogy. But he said when you, um, when your highest fear, when your highest amount of reverence and respect is reserved for Almighty God, then that fear uh, and that reverence actually drives out all lesser fears. And so I would leave that with you today in the middle of this pandemic. Hmm is um, be afraid and be reverent and be respectful of God first and foremost. And then let and submit your life to him and submit your will to him and let him govern your track wherever that may lead on your journey. But make sure that the thing that you respect the most and that you have the most amount of reverence for and the most amount of healthy fear towards is God Almighty. And then all these other lesser fears will begin to fall away and you'll begin to be able to live a life without fear. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have paved the way for us. Um, I thank you that you know the journey that lies ahead. And uh, in many ways, your son actually is the journey. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, he's the door into these other dimensions. And so I pray, God, that we would trust you on our journey. And I pray for those who are, are listening tonight or in the weeks and months and years after this broadcast, after this live stream, that um, they will just submit themselves to Almighty God and they would... Uh, begin to realize that uh, a lack of fear in our life is because we have ultimately come to that place where we respect and we revere and we are uh, following after God. And so I pray for those who are in a lot of fear right now. I pray that faith will rise up. I pray that uh, Jesus Christ will become real to them and that he'll be that calm in the center of that storm as he was for Clayton and his brother uh, over five years ago on April 25th in 2015. And so I pray that that will happen, Lord, and keep us far away from fear. You've said it so many times throughout the scriptures, fear not, fear not. And you also said trust, and you also said obey, and you also said follow. And so I pray, Lord, that we will heed your call and we will pay our highest respect and reverence and, and healthy fear towards Almighty God so that all these lesser fears will fall away. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll see you again in two weeks on uh, May 31st with Michael Vorce. Thank you so much for tuning in. I didn't say this at the beginning, but my name is Kevin DeVries, and I'm one of the team members here. Uh, many thanks to Corbin and Todd for being our producers of this show, and thank you, Clayton, for coming on. Thanks. God bless you, and let's get back to Everest again.